Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of hard work in order to succeed. Don't assume someone's going to give it to you. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or any tablet or PC. This is a fantastic way to get through a book while on the go. Choose any book for free. Who says there's no such thing as a free lunch? I recommend a great economics book to get you started called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. So get a book like this for free at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. Remember the E and the R for Economic Rockstar are capital letters. Hello, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to Economic Rockstar. I'm truly excited to have Doug Goldstein join us today. Hi, Doug. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Frank? Great to be here. Doug Goldstein has over 20 years in the financial industry, beginning his career on Wall Street in 1992 at Dean Witter. Doug is a certified financial planner, registered investment advisor, trust and estate practitioner, and licensed investment professional. Doug is the founder and director of Profile Investment Services Limited and hosts two podcasts on iTunes called Goldstein on Gelt and Rich as a King. Doug has authored numerous books on financial planning and building wealth and is co-author of Rich as a King, How the Wisdom of Chess Can Make You a Grandmaster of Investing. Doug is quoted in many publications such as the Wall Street Journal and Forbes, as well as guest lecturing to teach investing in colleges. Doug, I've given our listeners a little overview about yourself. Could you tell me a little bit more? Sure. Thanks very much. It was a very, very nice interview. It's always uh, introduction. It's always great to to hear someone else say something nice about you other than your mother, who you know always has something nice to say, I, I, I hope. Um, in fact, it's my mother who I'll tell you a little bit about because her story really leads to my story, which is I've been in the financial services industry for over two decades, but I actually started in the business as a partner with my mother. She was a vice president at Dean Witter, which you mentioned before. And when I joined, she and I were partners together. And even more interesting is that my mother's mother, my grandmother, was one of the first women to be a licensed stockbroker in America. So we've been on the financial planning, investment services, stockbrokering side of the investment world for uh, literally for decades in my family. Um, your co-author, Susan Polgar, for the book Rich as a King, She's a grandmaster in, and worldwide champion in chess. She broke the glass ceiling when it came to grandmasters in 1970s Hungary. And just like your grandmother, she broke the glass ceiling too. Very true. You know, it used to be that chess was considered a men's game. In fact, the, the world championship used to be called, the title of it was the Men's World Championship. And it's funny or sad, actually, when you hear Susan talk about it. She, in, in fact, had qualified to compete to, to actually play in the championship, but she was not allowed to, to get up to the next level because she was a woman. They said, this is a men's, this is the men's world championship. And ultimately she won four world, cha- women's world championships and, and, uh, she became a grandmaster. She was the first woman actually to become a grandmaster, which was unheard of in those days when, you know, everything was all about the men playing the game. And you mentioned that you were a partner with your mother at Dean Bitter too. Have you Mm -hmm. any maybe lessons that you might have learned from your mother or even grandmother about (laughs) financial planning or the stock market? Well, I'll tell you from my grandmother. My grandmother was a real stock 
picker, a real stock analyst. So she and I used to always talk about the fundamentals of different companies and how to analyze them. But I probably got the most out of working with my mother because before she was at Dean Witter, she had been a teacher. And I think the main thing that I learned was that when you're an investment advisor, you don't have any prophecy. There's nothing that you actually know about what's going to happen tomorrow in the markets. But what you do know or what you should be able to do is to educate your clients about how to responsibly take care of their own money. And my mother used to do that. And then when we were partners, we did that together. And 20 years later and four books later and hundreds, if not thousands of newspaper articles later, I've really taken her teaching to heart. So do women make better financial planners or investors than men <laughs> since you're learning well, from the best? I'll tell you an interesting story about that. I had the great opportunity to speak to Professor Terence O'Dean at the University of California in Berkeley. And he told me of a really great study that he did comparing the way men and women invest. I'm familiar with that one. It's a, so I'll just tell you, your oh, audience. No, I, I, love it. I, I love it. I love this story. He looked at the thousands of brokerage accounts that were traded by single men and thousands of brokerage accounts that were traded by single women, individual people, not professionals. And what he discovered is that the men traded considerably more than the women, and they underperformed the women by something like 1.5% a year, which is pretty significant in terms of the stock market. And what was the point he was making was that men were so overconfident. They always thought they knew what to do and they could move their money around and make smart decisions, and they wanted to look like they were intelligent and they felt that by moving, buying and selling, buying and selling, that was the sign of intelligence. And really, it was the women who were much more patient and did better. This is like your book, Rich as a King, where a chess player is very patient. They don't act busy on the chessboard. They plan ahead. Does that draw some similarities with uh, audience work that you just described? Yeah, I think so. One of the things that, that Susan pointed out to me when we were writing the book, and I think a real important part about being a great chess player, and in fact, we list this in our 64 Steps to Becoming a Grandmaster of Investing, which is the last chapter of the book. There's one step for each square on the chessboard, is she said that every move must have a purpose. All too often, amateur investors and amateur chess players, they kind of move around because they can't quite figure out their strategy and they, they want to, either they have to do something because in chess, when it's your turn, you have to move. Or in investing, they feel like, well, I better do something. And so they make a move that doesn't really have a purpose. And that's a huge mistake. You mentioned Terence Audion and you have a podcast, Rich as a King. You've spoken to a lot of economists. Who was your favorite economist or do you have any favorite <laughs> economic theory or who stood out as a guest on your shows? Oh, man. I loved all of the economists I spoke to. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. I, I, I actually had the great honor. I, I think I've probably spoken to most of the living uh, Nobel Prize winners in economics. The problem, you know, with the Nobel Prize is you only win it, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 years after your discovery, by which time you're pretty old. But I'll tell you, I, I don't want to name a favorite because really I, I enjoyed speaking to so many of them and I, I learned so much from all of them. A lot of the wisdom that they taught me is in the book. But I'll just tell you a funny story about Professor Daniel Kahneman, who actually is not an economist. However, he won the Nobel Prize in economics. And he, because of his study of behavioral finance, and he's written a lot of great books, you know, super best-selling books, but what he, what he told me was, or what he was be teaching me, let's say, on that interview 
was the difference between fear and greed. Because when I was learning in the field, they always said clients either act because of fear or greed. They're, they're afraid they're going to lose money or they're greedy and want to make a lot of money. And Frank, I, I assume you know there's sort of a famous experiment that was done about how much people would be willing to bet if they would flip a coin and if they would win, they would get a certain amount or if they would lose, they would get a certain amount. And uh, ultimately, uh, we don't have to go into all the details of the study now, but it showed that people were much more focused on the fear. They would be affected so much by the fear of losing, so much so that they would make a lot of bad decisions. And I spoke to Daniel Kahneman about this, and I also mentioned to him about the chess and investing and and how Susan and I had found so many parallels to behavioral finance, not only in investing, but also in chess. And he said, oh, that's great. I'd like to read that chapter. So that was a big honor, you can imagine. And we sent him the chapter on behavioral finance. And when he came back to us, we ended up meeting him in New York for lunch. And he said, well, I, I want to give you my comments. And the only comments he had to give us really were about the chess analysis and not about the behavioral finance, because it turns out he's a big chess player too. Oh, my goodness. Would you have noticed that some of these economists are, are chess players, maybe? Uh, yeah, I think I'm trying to think of some of the, well, Samuel Reshevsky was a, uh, was a uh, world champion, and he, I believe, also was an economist. And you interviewed Kenneth Rogoff as well. I think he's a chess player, too. Yeah, he, he is a he's a great story. First off, he's the former uh, chief economist for the IMF, and he when he was in college, or right before college, I think, he just, he was a not only just a chess player, he was a real great chess player, and he traveled around the world. He you know was a bit of a hippie at the time. He he told me, and he said, so I traveled through Europe and you know tried to make my way in tournaments, making money, and then uh, living that way. And then I realized I had to go back to school and get an education. And he became an economist. And by the way, he endorsed our book. It was a real honor. Do you have any affirmations or quotes or a mantra that you actually follow that helps you get through your business or your out entrepreneurial outlook? Yeah, let me tell you a, a great piece of wisdom. It's actually a, a, a bit of Jewish wisdom that comes from 2,000 years ago from the, the rabbis of the Talmud. And the sentence goes like this. It says, accept upon yourself a teacher, acquire for yourself a friend, and judge everyone favorably. And I think this is so, all three parts of that, get a teacher, get a friend, and judge everyone favorably. Certainly it applies so well in life, but in business it's very important too, because when you're a business person, you need to have someone to, to bounce ideas off of. Don't ever think you're the one and that you know everything. Get yourself a teacher, a real mentor. And the second thing is acquire a friend, which may not be your mentor, but it's certainly someone who you can talk to and go over ideas with and, and you know, someone you'll see on a more regular basis. And finally, I think I, I cannot prove to you that this is a great economic theory, but it certainly makes you happier. Go into meetings and negotiations with people and discussions with people as a friend. Assume that they're there to work with you and they're not against you. Now, I know this is very counter to what a lot of people feel that business is war and every day is a battle. Maybe. Maybe that really is true, but that makes you miserable. And you'll be much happier. And I can tell you from my own experience and the experience of like-minded businessmen like myself, you can be very, very successful and judge everyone favorably. 
I suppose based on those three points you mentioned, the, the mentor being important and also having a friend uh, is quite important too, because your friend is probably going to be your best or worst critic. Uh, the honesty maybe comes through uh, your friend. How important is it to have a mentor? And do you have any mentors that you might like to mention that helped you get establish yourself in your career besides your mother and grandmother? So I would say I've I've gone through mentors in my life and not, and not that I've uh, use them and throwing them away, but at different stages in my life, I feel that I've needed different people. And they're not necessarily famous people. They might just be someone who was one step ahead of me in the game. And they were always, always open to talking to me. I think one of the things that a lot of people are afraid of, which I have now disproven on many fronts, is but many people are afraid of just picking up the phone and calling someone and saying, hey, could I sit down with you for 20 minutes? I've got a question about my business. I know you don't know me but I respect what you've done and I would really appreciate your opinion. And you can do that with people. And just the same way that Frank, you can probably and are getting great people on your show. You're going to be able to continue to do that just by asking. True. Doug, um, you have a wealth of experience in the finance industry, personal finance too, and investment. What was your defining moment, if you could recall, that got you into this whole area in finance or your love for finance or economics? So I'll tell you, the, the specific focus that I'm really involved in now is strategic finance. It's what, what, what Susan Polgar and I refer to as strategic investing. And uh, it, it comes back to about oh, 15, 16 years ago when I lived in a small town and I was taking my then five-year-old daughter out for a walk. And we ran into Boris and Anna, a Russian couple who lived in town. And they, <laughs> Anna said to me, oh, what a cute little girl. How old is she? And I said, oh. Ayala is five years old. And Anna said, well, it's time she start taking piano lessons. And Boris said, and it's time she start learning chess. <laughs> and so, and needless to say, Anna taught piano and Boris taught chess. And so we signed Ayala up at the age of five. Now, fast forward about 10, 15 years, and my daughter and subsequently one of my sons became chess champions, and Boris was still their chess coach. And I used to sit in with them on their chess coaching sessions and what I began to notice, and I can tell you the specifics of a game, but I'll just tell you the big picture, was what I began to notice was so many of the, the concepts that Boris was telling my kids about improving their game were exactly the same things that I would tell my financial planning and investment clients about improving their investments and financial plans. And that's when it really struck me that we're, we're onto something here, that you can use the strategies of chess to illuminate so many concepts in investing that it's it's too bad that people don't even recognize it. And so some of these maybe, as you mentioned, planning ahead, maybe tactical moves. How different is short-term planning to long-term planning or how important is it to differentiate between these two time periods? Yeah, so let me comment for a second just about the planning ahead because I, I want to I share with you that I think it's a little more sophisticated than that. When, when we were working on the book, and Susan and I were working on this for about five years, and we shared the ideas and we told people what we were doing, and everyone said, oh, what a great idea, using chess as a, as a parallel study with investing. And they would always say, because chess players are so good at planning ahead, and investors have to be good at planning ahead too. And frankly, Frank, <laughs> that kind of bothered me when people said that, because if, if that was all there was you could get out of chess, plan ahead, we could have saved ourselves a huge amount of effort and we could have simply written a bumper sticker that people could put on the back of their car that would have said, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Mm -hmm. 
And really what we found was that there were so many subtleties, like you said, between short-term and long-term investing. But there was so much more about the types of moves that you would make and how not to put yourself in a dangerous position, both on the chessboard and with money, how to identify winning investments the same way that a chess player might look for a winning move. And all of those ideas are what we tried to really put together. When we talk about a game like chess, it seems to have a finite, almost a bounded outcome in that you have your wins and losses and you can almost strategically try and outmaneuver your opponent. That aspect of it is quite difficult to do in the actual markets because there, I, I believe there's more uncertainties and risks associated with participating in the marketplace. How can we actually try to manage those risks and uncertainties? Because it is more doable on a chessboard. That's a, a very, very good question. And I think you're really challenging the fundamental thesis that we've got. And let me, let me tell you my, my take on that, because I think that, that a great chess player, when you're talking at high, high-level chess, one player doesn't know what the other player is going to do. When Susan plays against me, I think she knows what I'm going to do. But when she plays in a, a you know, world championship level, world championship level match, she does not know what the other side is going to do. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't have a strategy, and it doesn't mean that she doesn't use her 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 greatest tactical skills in order to win. What am I telling you? That even in the stock market or in the investment world, I can't tell you what, what's going to happen tomorrow. And I've been at this for a long time. But I, I am able to help you to develop a strategy that you should really stick with. That's what a strategy is all about. That's your, that is your, your mode of operation in order to, to get to the, the ultimate conclusion. It's not about changing your strategy every day. It's like what you were saying um, with the lo- when you made reference to loss aversion after speaking to uh, Kahneman. When there are losses there, they actually do hurt the frequency of trading, like the audience study. That can actually do more damage to, to a trader in terms of the amount of commissions and other costs that are actually involved. And then you have the psychological reasoning that you might have to apply and adapt to a particular market. So being able to identify maybe some of these losses due to maybe your system not working at that that particular point in time. But if your system does work in the long term, it's something that you actually should try and trade and keep it. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think that when people often look for the best possible plan or the best possible strategy, but having a pretty good strategy today is much, much better than having no strategy until maybe one day you'll develop one. It's okay to, to grow as a strategist, and that's what all investors do. And that's what all chess players do. But at least focus on developing a good strategy so that you have a plan, uh, you know, a road to, to walk down. I love a quote by the English poet William Blake, I must have a system or be enslaved by another man's. So (laughs) I love that (laughs) really can apply to chess and the financial markets, too, because if you're looking over your shoulder, seeing what others are doing, you're always going to rely on an entry strategy plus rely on those for an exit strategy. And a lot of people make the mistake of referring to the news, listening to all this noise that goes on in the markets. Have you any advice for our listeners about listening to news or being part of news forums? Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. I, I I think I'm the bane of the existence for many media people because we actually have a section in the book. The title is called How the News Causes You to Lose. And it's just ter- – first of all, I'll go back to the behavioral finance people who have studied how when – they looked at two groups of investors, one of them that invested with the benefit of news and one of them that invested in a news vacuum. They didn't have regular news. And I guess maybe you hear where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. but – 
the people who didn't have the news actually performed better than those who had the benefit of reading a news feed on a regular basis. And I think the answer is because the people who decide on what's in the news have one goal in mind, which is to sell you their product, whatever it is, however, whatever their business model is, it doesn't matter, but they're trying to sell you something and they are absolutely not trying to make you a better investor. So realizing that, you got to realize that the news you're getting from most sources is probably pretty useless. And how can our knowledge of chess, for those people who are a beginner or haven't even attempted to open up a chess board before, how can our knowledge of chess make us a great investor or a grandmaster of investing? Well, first of all, as far as the book goes, you don't in fact need to be a chess player. You can read the book just fine even if you don't even if you've never pushed a pawn across the 64 squares. But I think that the principles that people derive from the chess game, well, let me give you an example. Let's let's not talk theoretically. One of the things that that Susan told me as a not only as a chess player but also as a chess professional, meaning that you know she spent her life making money as in the chess world. There are a lot of aspects to it. And she said you have to have goals. And as we were talking about the types of goals, you know, I don't – a lot of times, well, many, many people will talk to you about goal setting. And I think it gets to be, well, a little bit flaky, uh, quite honestly. It's, people just – it doesn't sound like a solid system. But as Susan and I were talking about this, and in fact, I even, I even quoted her a quote that I really like from the original J.C. Penney the guy who started the famous store in America called J.C. Penney, he said, give me a stock clerk with a goal and I'll give you a man who will make history. Give me a man with no goals and I'll give you a stock clerk. And what he was pointing out is that people who have goals achieve greatness and people who don't, well, they're just destined to, to be at the lowest level in the socioeconomic ladder. But you have to ask, how do you set goals? And we came up with a paradigm which we called strategic goals, and we capitalized the S-T-R-A-T, strat, the strategic letters from the word strategic goals. And we break that down to show people how to actually come up with goals. And we whole discussion in the book, I don't know if we have time for it today. What I love about what yourself and Susan are doing with this book is that you're teaching us a lot of the mistakes that may have been made by and previous people, including yourself and Susan <laughs> and others that you're aware of. So do, we don't have to make the same mistakes again. It's not as if we need to learn how to play chess in order to read this book. Likewise, you don't need to get a, a book on how to fly in order to fly like a bird. You know, we don't have to understand the theoretical or technical aspects of it all. But this book actually gives us a huge insight into what we should be aware of in terms of our psychology, how we approach things, short term and long term outlooks and much, much more. It's a fantastic piece, and I'm sure it will be a classic in years to come. Thank you. Thank you. If you were a chess piece, who would you be? <laughs> would you be the king? Well, that was going to be my first thing, because I do kind of like that model. Yeah. But I tend personally to be a... Um, no, you know something, Frank? I'm going to go for the king. I'm yeah. thinking about it more and more. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not a fast mover. The king only moves one square at a time. I tend... I'm just talking about me personally, and I know there are different types of people, but personally, I tend to be more conservative. I, I look for ways of trying to uh, protect my, my business and my, my savings, and I, I'm constantly looking for problems, coming up with solutions before the problems even arise so that they don't arise. And you put all your other pieces around you in order to protect your individual position. That's right. Um, that's like castling. On the, for those of you who are chess players, that's just like castling. And the pawns, if they were if they were 
financial instruments. What would a pawn be? Would it be like a, a cash or would it be a bond? Something <laughs> that's possibly slow moving or low risk in terms of protecting your own positions? I guess it depends where it's placed on the board. And I think that that's actually, the question is very good. And the answer is that you need to look at everything relative to the situation. You know, one of the things that bugs me, and I'll tell you, I, I did a podcast about this for Rich as a King, is I, I said, what's more dangerous, stocks or bonds? And I think the answer everyone would say would be, oh, well, you know, stocks are more dangerous mm -hmm. because you could lose money. But the fact is, if you own a bond in the wrong situation, it is incredibly dangerous. For example, when interest rates are low, if you own a long-term treasury bond, you might feel like a genius because it's long-term, so you're getting a, a higher yield than, than, let's say, the bank is paying. And it's a treasury bond, so you know it's very safe. It's backed by the U.S. government. So you are naively thinking that everything is okay. And you say, oh, I'm safer than the stock market because I've got a U.S. treasury bond. But the fact is, and you and I both know it, that if interest rates move up, the value of that bond is going to tumble. And you could lose a lot, a lot of money, not even mentioning inflation rate risk and currency risk. But that's for sure a, a, a real important lesson about understanding that sometimes you might have a good piece, but if it's in the wrong place, it's going to be very dangerous. Interest rates are at historical lows, so... How long are you going to be like that for? Yeah. Let me pull out my crystal ball and then I'll tell you. Mm, yeah, that's right. <laughs> That'll you, be in the next You, you next have episode. one of those too, have you? Yeah, yeah. But we charge extra for those. <laughs> You've been an entrepreneur since the age of 15 or maybe younger. You played the piano. Would that be correct? And you that's set up right. a company. Do you know of any tips or lessons that you might have derived from those early experiences that you actually appreciate having learned harshly at an early age? Yeah, I think probably the most important thing that anyone needs to do in business is, well, I'm going to say it in two ways, but I think they're both the same. One of them is building your community, building a group of people that you can constantly be in touch with because those are the people that you'll work with. And you want to make sure they're people you like. That's why I refer to it as a community and not just a network. Network is a little bit too scientific. And maybe you want to have as big a network as possible, like the whole Internet. But you can't work with all those people. But if you have a community, people you're close with, I think that's, that's really how you will ultimately succeed. Spend a lot more time focusing on what you can give to people than on what you can get from them. And I believe that's the, the path to success. Have you any advice for maybe 30-somethings that may improve their financial situation or how they might go about handling money? Because we're in a situation where we have people who might have left college in their mid-20s, early-20s and have faced a recession in the US or elsewhere, and they may have a lot of student loan debt, etc. Yeah, well, listen, for, on the investment side, we can talk about it in one second, but I just want to talk about what career advice I would give because I think a lot of people are making a mistake, especially in the changing economic environment that we live in today. We are not the same as our parents and grandparents. You're not going to work for some company for your whole life and then retire with a great pension at 60. It's up to you to take care of yourself. The government's going broke. Your parents are probably going broke. You're going broke and you're in debt. So you've got to get your own act together. And as soon as you understand how business works, it's okay to work for, for a company for a little while. I, I'm a big entrepreneur and I believe that most people should try to set their own sales and find something that you really enjoy doing that you can add value and work really hard to do it. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of hard work in order to succeed. Don't assume someone's going to give it to you. What about those who have maybe mortgages? 
Should we pay off our mortgages early? I tend to be an anti-debt person. The mortgage, I think, is the best debt you can have, but it's still evil in my eyes. But the worst debts that people have, I mean, the very worst ones might be uh, personal loans or payday loans. But there are car loans and there's credit card debt, and you have to get rid of all that stuff as soon as possible. Set a goal, like we talk about in the book. Say, I'm X number of dollars in debt, and I want to be out of debt and then, you know, in 12 months or 24 months. It's not that hard. The math is not so complicated to figure out how to do it. You just have to decide to do it. If you're married, turn to your spouse, and the two of you together should do it. And I'll give you one radical concept, which it doesn't make sense on a uh, dollars and cents basis, but I think when I explain the psychology, I hope it'll make a little sense. And that is, if you want to improve your, your financial situation, as long as you have food on the table and a roof above your head, you have to realize that you are better off than a billion people on the planet. And it's up to you to help. And you have to start being a serious philanthropist. So I don't mean just putting a dollar in the, in, you know, uh, in, a, uh, you know, in the plate that they pass around. I mean, look at what your income is and try to give between 10 and 20% of what you earn to charity. And I'll tell you why. That's a lot of money. And what I've seen is that and I, you know, you can never tell one person to his face, but I've spoken to thousands of people. Everyone has room to give. And by being a giver, first of all, it makes you a better person. It changes the character of who you are. It also changes the way you relate to money. And I can only tell you from my personal experience, which is the, the wealthiest people I know are the greatest philanthropists. And the harder things get for them, the more they try to give. And I would encourage everyone to do that. Yeah, I, I spoke to a number of people and one of our recent guests, Ryan Blair, he's a philanthropist and he has that whole outlook and I suppose attitude in life that you need to give because he got to a situation through extremely hard work, but he's had a lot of support there in terms of mentors, etc. So he sees based on his own background, how important it is for someone to reach out and help. And he's doing that in his own community and beyond. So, and there's no one I've ever met, I have to tell you. I, I've known a lot of people. I've never met anyone who said to me one day, Doug, I'm really having money problems. I only wish I had not given so much charity in my lifetime. I've never heard those words come out of anyone's mouth. I love a quote that you actually cited from Alice in Wonderland. If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Could you explain that and why you actually use that as a headline to discuss maybe budgeting? Yeah, listen, if you especially if we're talking for a minute about getting out of debt, the, the problem that people have is, that, is they don't put numbers to things. They don't have a specific roadmap. If you are not specific in your goals, and by the way, that's the S when Susan and I wrote about strategic goal setting. We, we said you've got to be specific. And the T is that it stands for time-bound. So you need a specific goal, meaning I want to pay off $10,000 in debt and I want to T, do it in this time frame. I want to do it in the next 18 months. And once you know that, all you do is you divide the $10,000 by 18, you figure out how much money you have to pay off each month, and then you stop buying things, like you cancel your cable TV and you, you don't go out to restaurants anymore. You will be so happy and so free once you've paid off those debts that you'll, you'll then have the ability to really build wealth in a serious way. So I'll just play devil's advocate here, if you don't mind. Say a person decides to give away 10, 20% as a philanthropist, mm -hmm. and they decide to budget extremely hard and pay and not have any credit card debt, debt that some people use to leverage. How can someone 
possibly become a millionaire or quite wealthy if that's the way they're thinking in terms of monetary terms? Or is that the next stepping stone? No, no, that is that is stepping backwards. There are always examples you can give with leverage. And I got to tell you, I had a, a big debate about this on my on my radio show with a Nobel Prize winner. And I said that I think people shouldn't have debt. And I was speaking about governments and the importance of, for example, the U.S. government. Maybe they're a little bit over indebted. And he came out strongly against it. And he said, listen, all your, it's, he said, debt is just another form of diversification. This time you're diversifying your expenses over time. And I get it. I understand it. But when we talk about real people and everyone trying to kick the can down the road so that, you know, today you don't have to worry about it, but tomorrow you will. And hopefully things are going to be better. Hope is just a really crummy way of managing your own personal finances, certainly a bad way to manage a government's finances as well. And we've seen countries and individuals within those countries who have tried to aim so big and over leveraged themselves regarding debt, aiming for the millionaire status or a wealthy country or a country that's growing rapidly, all come crashing down around them. And you don't have to. I'm sure you and I could cite many examples of people who used debt successfully, but I could cite a hundred more people who got wiped out because of it. A lot of people, it's it's not about money either. They they may feel rich inside in terms of being a philanthropist too. Absolutely. There's a lot more. Maybe I should have said that at the beginning. I'm sorry. I really think that, you know, is the financial planning model that I talk about, I'm not a bean counter. I'm not trying to say how much money can you make. Financial planning is really about making your life the way you want it to be. And hopefully it's not all about having more dollars in the bank. A lot of people aren't really aware of their psychology, how they might be able to react to maybe some risky investments. How does someone who is somewhat risk averse, how do they know which investment is most suitable to them? So one of the great ways of, of answering that question, and I deal with this a lot because when we open an account for a client in the office, we specialize in what's called cross-border investors, meaning people who live outside the United States who want to invest inside the United States. They want a U.S. brokerage account. And so there are these standard forms that people fill out. And one of the questions, which really bugs me, is it says, what is your risk tolerance? Are you aggressive, moderate, or conservative? And I've now been doing this forever. And I don't know what those words mean. Mm. And I don't think clients understand what they mean. Everyone says, well, I'm very conservative. And then I say, oh, does that mean you don't want stocks? And they go, no, no, I want to have stocks. So I say, okay, so you're not conservative. So I think these questions are very bad. But I'll tell you how I frame it to them so that they can answer what, what you're saying. I try to paint the picture. I say, listen, uh, Mr. Conway, you're coming in. You've got $150,000 to invest. What would happen if we invested it today? And then in three months, you opened your account and it was worth $95,000. You just lost $55,000. That is the price of a BMW. What would you do? And when I paint the picture that way, I can see people really beginning to think, what would I feel like? What, how would I react? Would I sell? Would I buy more? Right? These are the, this is a real dollar figure, and everyone knows what a BMW means if they could have had it, but now they can't. And that, I think, is a much, much more effective way of examining and sort of self-examination than ticking off a box that says whether you're aggressive, moderate, or conservative. Those questions you were asking, are they the type of questions that you had recognized Boris, the chess teacher, asking <laughs> your own kids? Yeah, in different language because we weren't talking about the the, the number of uh, dollars you'd want to lose. But, you know, chess computers often use a point system. So do players, by the way. They, each piece can actually has a point value. 
And you very frequently have to make a decision about, let's say, a trade. You know, you'll give up a piece in order to get your opponent's piece. And you have to make a decision. Well, how many points am I sacrificing in order to try and get to earn points from the other side? How can chess teach us about which stocks to buy? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm loading up the questions here on chess Yeah, you're getting stocks, more, more yeah. tricky. All right. That, that's that's uh, definitely a good question. Uh, let me give you an example that I, I like from the book. And it's about how to be aware of a problem. And one of the things, I'll tell you a little bit of a game that, uh, that Susan and I played. We, we played a game where, okay, it's a little bit chess technical, but it's not so hard. In the beginning of most chess games, good players castle, which means that they, they do a move where they swap their king and their rook. And basically the purpose is, is it kind of tucks your king into the corner safely. So I know that rule. I've been playing chess long enough that I know how to, you know, I know you're supposed to do that early on. And I did. And towards the end of the game, which frankly, when I play games with Susan, they don't last very long. But towards the end of the game, my king was not just protected back there, but it was crushed back there. It was, it was suffocated. I couldn't move it. And I was basically trapped by my own pieces. And it was a very interesting lesson that I learned. And I think there's also a lesson that you can that you can take in terms of investing in whether it's stocks and shares or many other types of investments that people are looking at, especially what are generically referred to as alternative investments. And that's the risk of liquidity, which is you don't have access to your money. You might have a valuable piece, like I had a valuable king and I had other pieces on the board. I just couldn't move them around because I was so tied up in my position that I had set myself up in. I, I set myself up thinking I was protecting myself, and really, I was just trapping myself. And the same thing happens. You see people buy, for example, hedge funds. The term hedge fund, sometimes it, sound, it sounds very sophisticated. Well, I buy hedge funds. And people say, well, you know, I'm in it, and they're designed to protect you in a down market. So you think you're protecting your pieces, just like I thought I was protecting my king. But what really happens is a lot of these invest, investment funds, these hedge funds, invest in all sorts of obscure products, and they're not liquid. You can't get your money out whenever you want. By the way, this was a huge problem in the 2008 crash. People simply couldn't get access to their money. So I, this, I don't know if you're following the metaphor. I'm sort of imagining, remembering in my mind this game I played. I, I was crushed even though I had a lot of pieces, but I just couldn't move any of them. And I think maybe that's a good lesson that people can take, which is liquidity, having access to your money, is really, really important. I love that. I love it. You move from the United States back to Israel. Ireland and Israel seem to have some kind of commonality in terms of their economy. Maybe 20 years ago, there were a lot of parallels drawn and we were both competing for a lot of US investment, direct investment at the time. Israel went more heavy on the technology, attractiveness of a technology, and you've actually grown in terms of a lot of these US multinationals setting up in Israel. And what's it like there now? It's very exciting to be in Israel. I have to tell you, the, apart from having a, a very, very strong economy, it's nice to be in the middle of, of a country where there's so much innovation, which is, is used all over the world. Let me give you an example. Just, you know, the stories are so great. And, and the fact is I know a lot of the people who are involved in these companies. I don't know if you've ever had a colonoscopy. And I know that's not a great topic for an economic show, but... <laughs> Um, apparently, it's a rather unpleasant thing to uh, to undergo where they – well, we don't have to go into the details. No. But in Israel, they invented a pill. It's called the pill can. And you swallow this pill, and it goes through your digestive system, takes pictures along the way. And while it's inside there, it is 
uh, helping the, the, the doctor right away see what's going on inside of you in order to make a decision about whether he should do some sort of uh, surgery. So it's a completely... Revolutionary task. It's revolutionary. It changes the way people work. I mean, that's just one. In health care, you know, Israel has a... It, we've developed an exoskeleton a, that really works, that people who never walked their whole, you know, their life in the, or they were... They were in an in, in an accident, and they strap on this uh, this exoskeleton, and all of a sudden they're walking. Amazing, you know, it's amazing. And of course, the technology you and I are using right now—all the internet technology, from voicemail to instant messaging—was all invented in Israel. So it's it's super exciting to be there. Anyone who's an investor who hasn't come to see what's going on here is missing out on great opportunities. Do you have any personal habits, Doug, that helps you get things done? <laughs> Yeah, I do. The first thing I do every day, and uh, I only wish I could stress this enough, but because it sounds a little boring when you say it, but really, it's great. Is I organize every day, first thing. Meaning, I come in, I look at what's going on in my calendar, I skim through the emails to see if there's anything I need to do, and then I write. A, literally, I write a list of the things that need to be done. And like Brian Tracy says in his book, "Eat That Frog," I do the perhaps the most unpleasant but most important things first. And when I finish my day, I can see that everything's crossed out. I have a program I use to do it, but uh, effectively everything that's crossed out are my accomplishments from, for the day. And on days when I forget to do it or something comes up and I don't get to do it, those are loser days. But days that I plan my day, they're great. Do you have any internet resource that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I'll tell you, the, uh, the tool that, that I like that's actually helped me help people is something that we built for the Rich as a King audience. One of the big, you and I have been talking a lot about strategy and we've been talking about goal setting, but a problem that I've noticed a lot of people have is that they just don't know what they have. <laughs> they can't figure it out. You say, well, how much, what's your net worth? And your know, client says, well, Doug, uh, and he starts kind of, you know, counting on his fingers. And I say, Mr. Conway, you don't know how much you're worth today? And they have no idea. And so we built a, a tool, an online tool, which is free and it's meant for readers of the book, but Frank, I'll give it to your listeners, but don't tell anyone else. If you, <laughs> if you go to richasaking.com forward slash snapshot, there's a tool there you can use, richasaking.com slash snapshot, and you can fill in all of your information, and it'll give you a report about where you are now. And you can either use it for yourself or if you work with a financial planner, it's a really great tool just to bring in and say, hey, listen, this is my situation. And he'll love it because all of a sudden everything is clearly spelled out so he knows exactly what, uh, what your situation is. And then you can build on that. So richestaking.com slash snapshot. Right. Fantastic. You mentioned a couple of books. You have one yourself, Rich is a King, and you mentioned Eat That Frog by Brian Tracy. Do you have <laughs> any recommended book or books that you would like to share with our listeners that we would actually benefit from? Sure. I'm a big believer in, uh, in, in some people call it time management, which I don't think that's the right term because you can't manage time. You know, Frank, you and I have the exact same amount of hours in a day, but you can manage the way you interact with time. And the classic book on this, which I read probably 25 years ago, and it's still I still use the techniques today, is a book by Alec McKinsey called The Time Trap. And it's a great book, and I recommend it to everyone. You are rich as a king. Can I ask you, will that be like, audible.com or sponsors of this show, by the way? Will you have Ooh. this as a... Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> we will have it as an Audible book. It's yes. going to be on audible.com. But I will tell you, for those of you who are authors, getting a book 
the publisher's working on it now, but we have the problem because in our book we have uh, we have actually we actually have some cartoons and we have some diagrams. And the question is, how do you convert all that to an audiobook? So we're working on that now. It will absolutely be available on uh, on Audible, but uh, it is the book is available obviously on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and wherever yeah. wherever fine books are sold. And do you have a website that we could actually go to in order to order the book too? Sure. Just go to richasaking.com and everything's there. If you're not ready to buy the book now, though I would, of course, encourage you to, at least sign up for our blog or for our podcasts so you can begin to hear some of these ideas. And then if you find the ideas speak to you over time, then please go ahead and buy the book. I must say, I love your podcast too. The guests <laughs> are actually quite amazing. Thanks so much. One more thing. Uh, what one takeaway would you like our listeners to leave with that can improve their approach to money, maybe finance or business even? Let's go back to a, a great quote. It's actually a, a proverb, a Chinese proverb, which maybe is, uh, is something if people take away and think, really, really think about it, they can dramatically improve their financial situation. And the Chinese proverb says, like, says this, when planning for a year, plant corn. When planning for a decade, plant trees. When planning for a life, train and educate people. Love it. Follow that. You know, think about that. Apply that to your life. And if you want to be a long-term success, start with education. For those people who want to listen to it again, just press rewind and just <laughs> soak that up. And I, I love the whole aspect, the team. Not only have we, are we talking about personal finance and bringing some analogies in chess, but the team, there's a secondary team running right through this interview, and that's all about teaching and learning. Um, your mother was a great teacher. You um, talk about teaching your own clients. You mentioned Boris being a chess player, teaching your kids chess. This team is running right through, and it's quite really, really important that you need to educate Educate yourself. If Even if you can't read a book, listen, listen, listen to podcasts, your podcast, my podcast, uh, any other podcast that's out there that actually suits whatever information that you're looking to find. It's all out there as an audible format too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Doug, thank you so much for sharing with us your advice and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners one more time where they can find you. Well, I think the best way to find us is going to our website, richasaking.com. But Frank, I was thinking of something special. I have actually prepared a, a webinar, which I called the three, well, the, the, the headline is how to achieve exponential growth in your business. And it's really based on what I did in my business. And the subtitle is the three game-changing tactics I used to double, double again, and then triple the size of my business. It, it is a short webinar. It's actually, we charge $27 for it, but I'd like to give it to any of your listeners who want to buy a copy of Rich as a King. So anyone who buys a copy of the book, please go to richasaking.com slash rockstar, special page just for your listeners. And we'll give you instructions there for what to do so you can get access to this course for free. Wow. Thank you so much, Doug. So that's richasaking.com slash rockstar. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Buy the book, get the webinar. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. You'll find all these links to Doug on economicrockstar.com. Doug, you are an economic rockstar. Thank, <laughs> thank you for being so generous with your time. It's really my pleasure. Frank, I really had a great time, and I hope we'll get a chance to, uh, to speak again real soon. Definitely. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you for joining me on Economic Rockstar. Would you like to be part of the Economic Rockstar community? Get free access to webinars, extra content, and updates on free podcast episodes. 
But why not head over to economicrockstar.com and sign up to get access to this exclusive content, only available to Economic Rockstar subscribers. See you next time.